Joining me here, Lucas Vargas, Nate Sorensen, and Teddy Gutkin. Uh, thank you very much for listening here on WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. Have a great week, everyone, and go blue. Playoff round. <laughs>
that's being described as uh, the FBA raid will have a component of it that's called a taint squad. And these are lawyers whose focus is to go through the documents that are found and sort of segregate the cases that have nothing to do with what they're looking for, uh, other clients' uh, documents and records and so forth, uh, and to glean out specifically what it is that they are looking for. And, of course, uh, because this is being done through the uh, District of Southern New York, it's not necessarily part of Mueller's probe, although uh, the reason for it may have been uncovered and indicated by uh, things uh, that he has seen and has access to. <clears throat> but uh, this is quite a big breakthrough, and it's obviously going to be a very stressful night for uh, one Donald J. Cupidal Trump. Uh, or as Mars called him uh, this weekend on Robot Pasta, the clueless wonder in chief, which I think may be one of the most accurate and maybe even generous, but certainly funny uh, descriptors yet for a president whose name many people are finding it increasingly hard to say. <clears throat> Hello, by the way, and welcome to Gray Matters, your weekly current events, politics and uh, news analysis program here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Jim Dwyer. <clears throat> Dick Whaley is uh, not here this week. He's uh, taking care of some family matters. And uh, so I will proceed apace on the solo flight today. <clears throat> Lots of things to talk about, certainly. Uh, really, there's only speculation that we can engage in further on the uh, the big breaking news story of the day, namely this uh, FBI raid in broad daylight of uh, the legal offices and living quarters, that is apartment, of Michael Cohen, chief fixer, <clears throat> uh, a longtime fixer, uh, it might be added, uh, to Donald J. Trump. And as one uh, expert noted this afternoon on MSNBC, quote, if Donald Trump has done anything illegal with Michael Cohen, it's about to be discovered. <clears throat> Certainly, it'll take a while to go through whatever documents they find. But. Uh, oh, boy. It's going to be kind of interesting. <clears throat> you might be able to hear me grinning here. <clears throat> chatting about this with my sister yesterday uh, she opined that uh, a week without an indictment is feels like a disappointment at this uh, rate but uh, no doubt she and numerous others are uh, encouraged by this uh, new development which promises to and this is really all anybody who's honest about it wants is to get to the basic crux of the matter what are the facts who did what who knew what who paid for what uh Things that have been glaring questions since before the election. <clears throat> uh, we're going to find out soon why, I suppose, uh, he never wanted his tax documents revealed, although all presidents or uh, aspirants to that office have uh, felt obliged to make that information available. <clears throat> and quite possibly, uh, Robert Mueller already has the Trump tax documents. I 
I think it'd be a pretty safe bet to presume that he does. Well, there are, of course, other things going on in the news, and that's one thing that's easy to overlook um, in the midst of the chaos and the madness that is the Trump administration. Um, I mean, it's really to the extent now where the character flaws of this president, his indiscretions, his blackmail ability, uh, his recklessness, his disregard for the norms and protocols of how statecraft is performed as both a science and an art um, have essentially set this country adrift. Um, There's really no way to get a focused response on events like the situation in Syria or what really will be the long-term consequences to America's heartland of the ill-conceived Chinese tariffs. You know, I don't think the Chinese are going to stop buying soybeans from us uh, necessarily, Um, but there uh, will be some uh, unforeseen and unanticipated impacts and consequences. Certainly the stock market last week was a bit of a bumpy ride, uh, largely due to anxiety about those tariffs. Uh, Not really going to talk too much about what's going on uh, in Gaza at the moment, uh, although there is an interesting piece by Patrick Coburn about that recently that I can encourage uh, readers to seek out. Um, That's a situation where both uh, Fatah and Hamas have essentially lost faith uh, and lost control of uh, the uh, capacity to direct any of the protests, it's really just sort of a, well, there's nothing we can do, so we're just going to stand and walk up to the fence. Apparently people are being shot for simply approaching the fence. Gaza is, let's be honest, uh, one of the largest open prison camps uh, in the world. I mean, it's essentially a refugee camp, but it's run more like a prison camp. So... uh, And this is another thing that the madness of Trump provides cover for is that there is no real serious or legitimate response from the U.S. about urging Netanyahu to remain cool, remain calm. Uh, There's a bombing in Syria at Israel's uh, hands over the weekend. I don't know if uh, more irons in the fire are likely to cool events in uh, Syria. I think just the opposite. Um, But I do want to... Before I get into some comments that I had prepared and talked about last week that I would get into uh, today about the swelling uh, teacher protest movement, I do want to share with you a short piece by Robert Fisk, who I think is uh, one of the most reputable and dependable uh, and honest uh, reporters who cover the Middle East. And he's been doing so for a long time. His... uh, famous book about the Lebanese civil war is kind of a standard text on that crisis conflict. Uh, And uh, it should be sought out for anybody interested in that history. Uh, But his recent piece is entitled the perils of predicting events in the middle East. And I'll just read it now. Prediction is a precise, elusive and dangerous science. We journalists are usually asked to practice this dodgy skill on political anniversaries, elections, before invasions, 
or even more perilously, during invasions. Take the city of Afrin. The Turks invaded the Syrian and largely Kurdish province just under two months ago. They took their time. They had few tanks. Their free Syrian army allies uh, appeared to be non-existent. Alas, their newfound Islamist allies were not. But when I visited Afrin less than two weeks after the start of Turkey's Operation Olive Branch, as sinister a name as any in recent decades for armed aggression, its citizens were shopping in crowded streets, their homes unbombed, the restaurants open. I reported that if the Turks really used all their firepower, they could have entered the city in half an hour. They appeared to be, quote, sheep in sheep's clothing, I suggested, quoting Churchill's description of Clement Attlee. I should have known better. Attlee won the 1945 election, and the Turks entered Afrin City on 18 March. Well, at least I hadn't said they wouldn't capture the place. But back in Damascus this month, an old Syrian friend cheerfully reminded me that when I returned from Afrin in January, I did tell him that I thought the Turks had no intention of entering the provincial capital. Quote, you said the Turks would not go there, he admonished me. What you said about Turkey was right from the start of the war, but this time you got it wrong. Close quote. I fear he was right. The problem, of course, was that the Kurds, especially the People's Protection Units, YPG, Militia, and its associates, were already famous in song and legend for crushing ISIS. How could they destroy so much of this vicious cult, I asked myself, but then lose to the Turks? My mistake. I forgot a real error in the false art of prediction that the Kurds had not stood their ground against Iraqi forces in Kirkuk. They had largely abandoned their front lines, which is exactly what they did again in Afrin. But why did the Russians leave the Kurds to their fate? Well, here are a few reasons. Firstly, the Russians were tired of the Kurds' decision to act as America's foot soldiers in Syria as well as Iraq. They had, in the words of my Syrian friend, put all their eggs in the American basket. <clears throat> Secondly, the Russians suspected that the mortar shell which killed one of their most senior officers in Syria, Lieutenant General Valery Asipov, commander of the Russian 5th Army in the far east city of Usuriysk, not far from Vladivostok, was fired into the Syrian city of Deir Erzor by ISIS, while the Americans were arranging free passage through ISIS lines for Kurdish forces en route to Raqqa. Did the Kurds help ISIS? They were talking to each other, if only a few weeks earlier, strike a blow at Russia's military operations in Syria. More importantly, however, was an incident in which the Kurds deliberately destroyed a military bridge constructed by the Russians over the Euphrates River for pro-Syrian militias. The Kurds opened the sluice gates on a neighboring dam and flooded the river, and the bridge collapsed. <clears throat> Without Russian air cover... And the Turks must also have had Vladimir Putin's permission to hoist their flag over Afrin's city hall. The Kurds were doomed. The civilians fled in their tens of thousands, and so did their YPG defenders. No doubt Putin and Erdogan, Turkish Prime Minister, are enjoying their talks in Ankara this week as they confirm the construction of a Turkish-Russian nuclear reactor and a new missile defense shield. I doubt if they had much time to discuss Afrin, <clears throat> and why should President Hassan Rouhani of Iran, who joined them, care about the Kurds? So much 
for my prediction to my Syrian friend. <clears throat> Excuse me. But there are some crystal balls which will always reflect the truth. Take Arab elections, or more to the point, Egyptian elections. It's a fair bet that almost any Arab potentate, Saddam in his day, Assad, Sadat, or Mubarak, will win a presidential poll by more than 90%. But having covered parliamentary and presidential elections in Cairo for more than four decades, I thought I'd have a crack at Field Marshal slash President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi's victorious results a week before the election was actually held. Since he picked up more than 96% in previous polls, I reported in The Independent, quote, I have a hunch it will be somewhere between 93.73% and 97.37% for the president. But my second gamble is a shoe-in. Will President Trump call Mr. Sisi after his election victory to congratulate him? Of course he will. And he will call him a great guy who's doing a great job. Close quote. <clears throat> well, what do you know? The Egyptian people, with an admittedly miserable turnout and an even more pathetic electoral opponent to Sisi, gave their beloved leader 97% of their votes. The nearest percentage point appeared to be 97.08. That means I got the result too well within my predictions a week earlier and without any Egyptian opinion polls to help me. Just 0.29 from my own top percentage point. Psephologists must surely stand in awe. But they must also forget that Mubarak won 96.3% for his third six-year term in office in 93, that Sadat won a thumping 99.95 victory uh, for political reform in a 1974 referendum, and Saddam scored 9996 for his presidency in 1993. Hafez al-Assad, however, picked up 99.987% of the Syrian vote for a new seven-year term in office in 1999. Only 219 erring citizens voted against him. <clears throat> so, if you spend your time reporting this stuff, you can predict the future with considerable accuracy. And after Trump's congratulatory called Tsar Putin after his election, it was also inevitable that the wretched man would telephone Sisi to congratulate him on his superb, nay, miraculous triumph in Egypt, just as I said he would. But did he call Sisi a great guy and tell him he was doing a great job? According to the White House, the two leaders, quote, affirmed the strategic partnership between the United States and Egypt, close quote, and spoke, quote, of Russia and Iran's irresponsible support of the Assad regime's brutal attacks against innocent civilians, close quote. Which means that Sisi, for Trump, is indeed a great guy doing a great job. Funny, though, how Trump is becoming as predictable as an Arab election. Do they perhaps have something in common? Well, I think listeners can draw their own conclusion there. Robert Fisk writes for The Independent, where this column originally appeared. I read it to you from the Counterpunch website, which sadly has sort of gone up its own colonoscopy in many ways. I regularly check for the work of Patrick Coburn and Robert Fisk, but uh, not uh, terribly fond of a lot of the other writers on there at the moment. I'm going to take a quick little interlude here, and we'll be right back with more Gray Matters. 
By the way, one last observation on uh, Syria. As reported in Friday, April 6th, edition of the New York Times, the United States military is spending about $1 million to help detain thousands of Islamic State fighters and their family members in makeshift camps run by Kurdish militias in northern Syria, pulling the Pentagon deeper into the war, uh, into the war zone detention operations it has sought to avoid. What could go wrong there? Well, I'm afraid we need only wait to see, and we will find out. It doesn't sound like a good plan. <clears throat> I'm going to wait also until next week when Dick Whaley returns to discuss the death of Anna Chenault, noted uh, Nixon operative, and uh, she passed away at age 94 this year. Uh, instrumental in uh, Nixon's sabotage, essentially, of the United States government's peace negotiation uh, overtures being orchestrated by the Johnson administration as the duly accredited chief executive of the United States at that time to have thwarted those uh, peace negotiations. Seems kind of treasonous. <clears throat> so uh, we'll wait until uh, Dick returns to talk about that. So let me turn instead to a few things uh, really kind of exciting. As somebody who spent 15 years as a secondary language arts uh, instructor here in a local high school, in a number of years I spent preparing for that job, not just, of course, your own career as a high school student, but choosing and deciding to become a teacher <clears throat> is, uh, well, it's an almost evangelical uh, concern for most people who become teachers. They feel so strongly about the importance of the work that, you know, the pay, while of course much welcomed, is really secondary to the uh, idea that the function and purpose of a teacher is such an important thing regardless of whatever your uh, area of instruction is, you know, whatever your subject is, <clears throat> you feel so strongly about it that you're willing to devote your professional career to the betterment of America's youth, to build for a better future for your community. <clears throat> and the money is sort of secondary. Now, certainly nobody goes into the career of teaching to become rich. Unless, of course, you're affiliated with one of Betsy DeVos's uh, bizarre uh, charter schools, <clears throat> in which case you're accountable to nobody and uh, the money sort of shows up. Um, but there have been an increasing number of uh, teacher walkouts across the country, and it's a trend that I think is probably likely to spread a little bit. The fact that these are happening in states that went red is even more interesting and compelling. We're talking about West Virginia, where teachers staged a successful walkout and got a substantial raise. Oklahoma is still an ongoing walkout. Kentucky and Arizona is gearing up <clears throat> for that sort of thing. Um, you know, some people uh, wonder why teachers are so upset, you know, uh, $52,000 a year salary sounds certainly pretty good, better than a, a lot of people earn. 
<clears throat> but uh, it's it's a lot more complicated than that, uh, certainly. And uh, just speaking for myself personally, I've had a number of jobs over the years, you know, in retail. I worked on a farm. Um, I worked in a photocopy shop for a number of years. I uh, also taught high school. And uh, under that guise, I was a professionally accredited language arts instructor. <clears throat> but uh, towards the end of my teaching career, I began to feel about as well respected uh, as I did when I worked at Burger King. And that was not from students, parents or colleagues. Uh, all of whom treated me with, and each other with uh, with good respect. And, uh, you know, parents were very supportive of teachers uh, here in Ann Arbor and still continue to be so. <clears throat> but on behalf of the state Department of Education itself and uh, a lot of upper-tier administrators, uh, you really felt undervalued. Certainly it's been fair game for uh, politicians typically on the right to uh, openly beat up on teachers as lazy or overpaid or people with a political agenda. <clears throat> when really uh, most teachers are very careful to keep their personal political opinions to themselves and allow students to draw their own conclusions. And, you, you know, you sort of moderate whatever debates emerge relative to the subject matter you're talking about. But what's happening here is, uh, I think, got the potential to become widespread, especially when you think about pairing it with the uh, recent uprising of uh, student anger over the gun safety issue. <clears throat> students and teachers form a natural alliance. And I know that most teachers were very firmly in support of the student walkouts uh, here in town and nationwide <clears throat> to demonstrate uh, just how strongly they feel about this. Uh, but there are a number of ways in which uh, teachers have been uh, under siege for years now. Uh, there's a pent-up rage uh, that's about to bubble over. There's been pay freezes, budget cuts, benefit cuts, which amount to uh, cuts in pay. The very deep uh, appointment of Betsy Ross as Secretary of Education was a slap in the face. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, people don't become teachers for the money. Uh, in a lot of ways, teachers have a, a sort of a martyr mentality. You pay out of pocket for some of your classroom supplies, um, you know, uh, and you worry about that, of course, because it affects your personal uh, home budget. But you want to be able to do the presentations that you want to benefit your students. <clears throat> uh, and the work day is way longer than the 7.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. school day. Uh, there's a lot of meetings and planning and grading and endless grading. And did I mention the grading? And it's, it's pretty endless. And even summers are shortened by uh, obligations for continuing education. And the recertification of teachers is uh, essentially amounts to a tax on teachers um, since they have to pay for that license on a pretty regular basis. Um, towards the tail end of my teaching career, we saw class sizes explode. You know, there was one teacher, I think, in Oklahoma talking about a scenario where she had 40 students and only 30 desks. That exact same thing happened to me with virtually identical numbers. 
And while, you know, some desks were eventually acquired, I was actually told, well, you know, let's wait and see if some of the kids drop out of this class and then we don't need as many desks. Well, maybe the kids are dropping out of the class, not because they don't like the class, but because they don't like to sit on the floor. Um, I worked in a classroom that was uh, badly damaged with water leaking to the extent where black mold had formed under the floor. I complained about it for weeks and weeks, months and months. Nothing was done. And when I happened to mention that I might notify somebody at OSHA, uh, suddenly an inspection was uh, scheduled. And overnight, I was told, oh, you're getting a new floor in that room. Uh, but they would never answer my questions as to why. Well, how bad was it? Uh, this was a very frustrating thing because it affected my health and the health of my students and uh, seemed grossly irresponsible. But again, part of the reason for that is that there's just not money in the budget. We just don't systematically take the budget of educating the youth and having nice buildings for them to sit in <clears throat> while they learn. Uh, seriously enough. And uh, until this country takes uh, stock of itself and recognizes the fact that education is central to everything that we want to do uh, regarding improving the future, uh, we're likely to be spinning our wheels in the sand. And it's kind of sad that it takes teachers and students to make the noise to make schools more functional uh, because that cuts into their very real everyday work of instruction and learning. So in addition to all the other hats they have to wear, now they have to be advocates for the very enterprise of education itself. And on that note, I will sign off for today's edition of Gray Matters, and uh, I'll just throw this out here that any opinions uttered are those of myself and do not necessarily represent the board of directors of WCBN or any of the executive staff here. I will return next week with Dick Whaley for another edition of Gray Matters. 